AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Association of Conservation Districts. Are you looking to get conservation practices implemented on your land or in your community? Local conservation districts can find funding opportunities to support your conservation goals and needs. Let the National Association of Conservation Districts connect you with your conservation districts today at nacdnet.org. When was the last time you incorporated something new into your daily life? Be honest with yourself here. I'm not talking about switching from regular Coke to diet. I'm talking about switching from regular Coke to water. Big, holistic, comprehensive change. It doesn't happen that often. Some studies say less than 10% of New Year's resolutions have staying power. We're creatures of habit. We crave the comfortable. We don't like to change unless we absolutely have to. After the Dust Bowl and the blinding plumes of topsoil that spread from the plains all the way to the nation's capital and beyond, many people thought agriculture just had to change. The practices that paved the way for the historic erosion and the massive brown clouds that resulted had to come under some serious reevaluation. But changing the minds of an entire region's farmers and ranchers? Good luck with that. That didn't stop one man from trying, though, and his success in doing so left fingerprints on the conservation practices and policy still in place throughout American agriculture. I'm Spencer Chase. Let's explore this and more in the fifth and final episode of our deep dive on farm and food policy drivers, Dust in the Wind. The story of conservation in American agriculture cannot be told without the name of one man in particular. Hugh Hammond Bennett. Hugh Hammond Bennett. Hugh Hammond Bennett. Hugh Hammond Bennett. Hugh Hammond Bennett fought a long, lonely battle to reshape American agriculture. The North Carolina farm boy even figured out how to use the Dust Bowl to his advantage in the political arena. But more on that later. Conservation is a timeless exercise. Actions being taken today are for the benefit of tomorrow. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, conservation was an afterthought for much of America's earliest colonial settlers. In 1862, Congress passed the Homestead Act, which offered 160 acres of land for settlers. Claimants of the acreage had to live on the land for five years and improve it, including by cultivation for agricultural use. After the Civil War, Union soldiers were even allowed to deduct their time served from the residency requirements and accelerate their path to land ownership. The law was known in the U.S. and around the world, according to South Dakota landowner and Washington, D.C. conservation policy consultant Bruce Knight. At that time, the railroads went to Eastern Europe and told folks that the rains followed the plow. If you came out to South Dakota, you settled there, you homesteaded, and you broke it up, the rains would come because that land had been plowed. Couldn't have been more egregious ecological advice ever given in, in humankind. Was there some kind of meteorological connection to tillage of the soil? Probably not. But the advice worked, and farmers were putting seeds in loose black soil. By the way, ask any agronomist. It's soil, not dirt. And it was looking at some of that freshly cropped soil that conservation leader Dave White tells us 
gave Bennett one of his earliest epiphanies as an employee of the USDA Bureau of Soils. His job was to start mapping the soils. The soil survey was just getting started in America. And Bennett was in Louisa County, Virginia, and he saw a landscape. And he could tell it was the same soil type, but one part was in crop and the other part was in a forested condition. And he knew it was the same soil. But in the crop it land, it was all broken up, it was dry, there was no organic matter. Over in the underneath the forested canopy, it was rich, it was smelled earthy, uh, it was moist. And Bennett had an epiphany right then that how we treat our soil will determine our long-term sustainability. Thus began Bennett's crusade to improve the health of America's soils through conservation practices. Years of research to prove his hypothesis would follow. Eventually, he came to the unmistakable conclusion. Modern agriculture is killing the very soil it needs to survive. We Americans have been the greatest destroyers of land, of any race or people, barbaric or civilized. Yeah, Bennett had the tendency to be a little blunt with his assessments. Unless immediate steps are taken to restore grass to millions of acres of these sun-scorched, wind-eroded lands, we shall have on our hands a new man-made Sahara, where formerly was rich grazing land. USDA compiled several of Bennett's quotes and some biographical stories on him for a 2017 video. Perhaps the most famous tale of all was his legendary trip to Capitol Hill. Two three-word sequences are critical to understanding the history of American conservation policy. One is a name that we've already discussed, Hugh Hammond Bennett. The other, the Dust Bowl. And it was in the spring of 1935 that the two would come together on Capitol Hill. American agriculture was still heavy on tillage leading up to the 1930s. So when winds swept across millions of acres of farmland, nothing was there to hold the topsoil in place. As a result, massive storms filled the air with what was supposed to be in American farm fields. The storms were brewing in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and the surrounding states. The bills were being filed in Washington. One such piece of legislation was the Soil Conservation Act of 1935, which suggested the creation of a soil conservation service and incentives for farmers to employ conservation practices. Bennett was called to Capitol Hill to testify on the bill, but he kept finding reasons to delay the hearing data collection, personal conflicts, what have you. But Bennett stalling was for good reason, and some dramatic flair on Capitol Hill. The exact specifics of the moment are the stuff of legend, which means there has probably been some exaggerating that has taken place as the story has been told and retold over the last 90 years. But a common theme in the legends of that fateful day is that a dust storm swept through Capitol Hill just as lawmakers were discussing the merits of policy to curtail dust storms. One of the senators remarked, it's getting dark. Another senator ventured, maybe it's dust. I said, you're right, Senator, it's another dust storm. We went back to that table, and I was feeling pretty good. The legislation was quickly sent to the White House, and the next generation of conservation in American agriculture began. Bennett was the obvious choice to lead the newly formed Soil Conservation Service since he was already leading the Soil Erosion Service at USDA. The evolved outfit was tasked with helping some of those windswept fields recover from the effects of the Dust Bowl. Terry Cosby now sits in the same seat Bennett once did, only the USDA agency he leads is called the Natural Resources Conservation Service. He was a man for his time. He, he, he envisioned 
what could happen if we didn't take care of the land. But the thing about being ahead of your time is that it means you're repeatedly going to be up against people still firmly entrenched in the ways of the present. Bennett was able to make progress, but as Knight points out, using a methodological approach to sway farmers can take time. Conservation is based in, in soil science. So, so anything on, that's based off soil science moves slowly, methodically, very systematically. So quite often the producer groups in the countryside may pick up some of the trends that are going on in conservation more quickly than the agencies do. Some of USDA's earliest soil conservation work once the Soil Conservation Service was on the books was to address the impacts of the Dust Bowl. Camps staffed by the Civilian Conservation Corps sprang up across the country to house the roughly 25,000 CCC volunteers who were working under the supervision of the Soil Conservation Service. As a personal side note, my high school FFA leadership camps took place at a facility in western South Dakota originally constructed by the CCC, Camp Bob Marshall in the Black Hills National Forest. I can say with firsthand certainty that the land there has been conserved in its forested condition. While the need for increased food production to help with the war effort in the 1940s may have slowed the nation's conservation planning, it didn't stop it. Once the war ended, producers found themselves dealing with surpluses. So in 1956, the Eisenhower administration implemented the Soil Bank, which would go on to include some 29 million acres. Farmers could enter into three to 10 year contracts that took land out of production and instead deployed an approved conservation practice. Critics of the program argued it was more of a supply management exercise than a conservation success story. Landowners took acreage out of production and more than 300,000 contracts were inked. Payments exceeded $300 million in some years, the equivalent of about $3.4 billion in today's money. Ultimately, the program wouldn't survive into the 1960s, and White says its conservation focus was short-lived. Step back came in the 1970s with the, uh, the Russian grain harvest. It was real low. Our, our prices went through the roof. Uh, the Secretary of Agriculture at that time said uh, plant fence row to fence row, and boy, did they. Uh, There's some estimates like 40 years of conservation were, were wiped out. That Ag Secretary was Earl Butts, who held the position from 1971 to 1976. In a 1993 archival interview for Purdue University, Butts took the comment a step further. They not only planted a fence row to fence row, they tore out the fence rows. I can't even find the fence rows out there now, and I guess that's because of large tractors and large combines. But be that as it may, if you don't produce it, you can't sell it. Butts argued he may have said the famous fence row to fence row one-liner, but he was merely a messenger for a marketplace clamoring for more production. The effect of the conservation mindset of the 1970s, or maybe lack thereof, was massive. One congressional report said that more than a quarter of the producers in the Great Plains region had plowed recently established grasslands to plant wheat. But the 1980s ushered in a different view. As we covered in the fourth episode of this season, financial turmoil was unfolding. Surpluses from the 1970s planting sprees had flooded global markets. Interest rates were skyrocketing. And a bolstered environmental lobby wanted conservation programs not supply management gimmicks. The 1985 Farm Bill delivered. It was the first Farm Bill to include a conservation title, spelling out specific programs in law. Among them was the Conservation Reserve Program. CRP harkened back to the soil bank of the Eisenhower administration. 
highly erodible land was pulled from production in exchange for a payment from the government. Reagan administration Ag Secretary John Block pitched the idea, but it fell flat. I actually made my presentation at a at a cabinet meeting, and when it was when I my presentation presentation was done, I had one or two members of the cabinet said, well, we're not going to have that conservation reserve program that you're planning to do. Well, that was it. So I didn't have it in the original bill, but I was still talking to members of Congress, the senators and others. And uh, by April that year, 85, uh, we're pretty sure, I was pretty sure we're going to get it into the bill. CRP was eventually signed into law as part of the 1985 Farm Bill. But there was still the issue of implementing the new program through the rulemaking process. Without going too far down the regulatory rabbit hole, it's important to note something about government regulations. They all go through the White House Office of Management and Budget. One of the people who flagged their objections to CRP and the Reagan administration cabinet meeting where Block first pitched the idea was OMB Director David Stockman. So, even though Congress had authorized the creation of CRP, there was still time for Stockman to get his fingerprints on the final program. So, imagine Stockman's surprise when he got wind that Block was headed to the home farm of fellow CRP champion and Indiana Senator Richard Luger. I flew out to Indiana to, to announce it there with members of Congress, and I got a call that night that I got in there, I don't know how, but the Office of Management and Budget guy called me and he said, what are you doing out there in Indiana? Are you going to announce a conservation reserve program? And I said, yeah, that's what we're going to do tomorrow. And he said, well, you're not supposed to do that. Well, I said, I'm here with the senators. We're going to do it anyway. So we did it the next day. Stepping outside the OMB process to unveil a controversial new program was a gamble for Block and his team. But it worked. The program remains on the books as a cornerstone of conservation policy to this day. CRP wasn't alone in terms of government programs taking land out of production at the time. Government set-aside acres were a feature of the era's farm policy. The 1970 Farm Bill actually required set-aside acres as a contingent for receiving price supports. By 1983, set-aside acres peaked at $78 million. Eventually, the idea would give way to CRP with the passage of the 1996 Farm Bill, which eliminated set-asides. The 1980s eventually faded away, but it was an era of financial chaos and landmark farm policy legislation. And CRP was not the only program from that decade to leave fingerprints on today's conservation landscape. We'll take a look at modern agricultural conservation policy right after this. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Association of Conservation Districts. Are you looking to get conservation practices implemented on your land or in your community? Your local conservation district can help. For nearly 90 years, conservation districts in every state and territory have been matching producers with funding opportunities to support healthy soil, water, forests, and more. In both rural and urban areas, districts navigate new opportunities that compensate producers for practices that conserve natural resources and capture carbon. These are local people looking out for local interests, and they are here to help you. Let the National Association of Conservation Districts connect you with your local conservation districts today at necdnet.org. 
Even as conservation efforts had their hiccups, some of Hugh Hammond Bennett's earliest principles still guide USDA's conservation approach to this day. For starters, Bennett stressed the need for conservation advice to come from someone with on-the-ground knowledge of that given part of the country. Still today, Cosby says conservation planning benefits from a specialist that knows the farm and the farmer. If you provide the producer the right information and the right technology and all these type of things, they're going to do it because they want to be sustainable. Locally led works. When you think back to Hugh Hammond Bennett and creating the first district in the early 30s, and that was because they wanted the local folks to be in control of, of that you can't, you can't write a subscription from, from Washington, D.C. to take care of land across this country. It has to be the local issues, has to be locally led, and then science-based. That local focus, frankly, means USDA needs a lot of help. So, in step outside technical assistance providers from various wildlife, environmental, and agricultural groups. Cosby says it was an uneasy relationship at first. When this all first started, you know, I was a state conservationist in Ohio, and I remember working with uh, Pheasants Forever to establish our first agreement to have boots on the ground, biologists, boots on the ground. And the federal staff got a little bit nervous because they saw, well, are these people coming in to take our jobs? Uh, can we coexist with them? Uh, you know, what are their roles? And... And, and But we, we saw something unique here. And so if you look at it today with the amount of agreements that we do, uh, we're somewhere between five and depends on when it is and what year, somewhere between five and 7,000 of our partner employees that are, that are providing this service. Jason Weller was an NRCS chief during the Obama administration. Today, he's the chief sustainability officer for Meatpacker JBS, but he also spent time in his career at Truterra, the sustainability arm of Land Lakes, With a career that has shown him all sides of the technical assistance equation, he says all sides are essential. You can take the boy out of NRCS, but not NRCS out of the boy. I'm still very proud of the agency um, and proud of the men and women that, that do great work on behalf of, of farmers and ranchers. Uh, that said, the agency you know, has, has a lot of challenges. They, they are being asked to do a lot. Their mission is very broad, um, and they've you know been human resource constrained as of late, and just, you know, both from a generational transfer in the workforce to having limitations previously on their ability to backfill and hire workforce. Sometimes the issue is staffing constraints, or sometimes, as Cosby notes, the issue is a need for additional knowledge. A lot of time when our federal employers, we don't have the expertise to deliver this. When you start talking about forestry, uh, we don't have a lot of forces on staff. When you start talking about the biological side of things, a lot of times we don't have biologists on staff. So these partners bring a unique skill set in to help us with this. And so when we go out to these farms, these partners are along with us. They're part of the, the planting family, and farmers trust them because we trust them uh, to be on these farms. And we provide one-stop shop service. Uh, we look at all resource concerns, and partners are really a big part of that. And we could not do this work without partners. And then there's the roughly 3,000 soil and water conservation districts throughout the United States. So what in the heck is a conservation district? I'll turn that over to Jeremy Peters. So conservation districts are units of local government 
they were formed in the 1930s in response to the Dust Bowl at the same time that the Soil Conservation Service, now the Natural Resources Conservation Service, was formed at USDA. So the conservation districts are uh, made up of locally elected and appointed individuals uh, from within their communities, and they work to help identify and determine local priorities for natural resource conservation and work in partnership with USDA, with state government, with a wide variety of stakeholders uh, to get effective conservation on the ground. Peters is the CEO of the National Association of Conservation Districts, which, by way of disclosure, is the sponsor of this episode. Sometimes farmers have unique needs specific to a region or commodity. Take, for instance, Massachusetts farmer and NACD president Kim LaFleur. Well, we have a unique crop. Uh, we're cranberry growers, and so for us, a lot of our conservation practices involve managing of water. Uh, so either we need more water or you need to get rid of some of the water. So our conservation practices include installation uh, of water control structures or flumes, uh, bypass canals, uh, sanding is also a conservation practice that we use for pest protection as well. Talking a farmer into a conservation plan is a bit of an easier proposition today. Sure, there are still some objections to specific practice recommendations an NRCS employee or third-party technical assistance provider might suggest. But today's farmer grew up hearing the Dust Bowl stories from their parents and grandparents. They've pulled over to chat with their neighbor about the new idea they tried on the quarter section across the road from theirs. And in many cases, conservation has looked a lot like good business. We have pretty much maximized our water efficiency. We have maximized our plant efficiency as it pertains to precision planting. We're maximizing our fertilizer efficiency, and the missing component has really been soil health. What we can do to improve productivity and fertility by farming by the inch rather than the acre, and that's all about the soil health movement, and that is maximizing economic returns, fertility returns, and improving carbon sequestration simultaneously. So you have something that, that works, in many cases, on the profitability side and on the, on the conservation side. Sure, no-till and precision farming practices reduce input costs, but they can also double as conservation techniques. All this interest in conservation programs has presented a bit of a problem. Sometimes there isn't enough money to go around. Let me tell you, we had a huge backlog of folks coming in saying, hey, I want to participate. We never had enough money to get to them. We're doing that. We also have another side of, of a segment of society that want to participate, and they've never been in our office before. So we're doing the effective outreach. We've seen more new customers this year than we've ever seen come through our doors. And there's a combination of different things. Um, we have a lot of folks out there doing outreach on our behalf. Uh, they're just bringing folks in. There's a lot more folks moving out there that's buying an acre or two and they want to take care of it. And so we have a new customer base in a lot of the states and a lot of the counties. For years, USDA has pointed to oversubscription issues in its conservation programs. In September of 2023, the department put out a press release putting some figures to the issue. There was $250 million available through the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. USDA received $475 million worth of applications, $100 million available for the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program, $180 million worth of applications, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, $250 million available, 
more than $2 billion in project proposals. The Conservation Stewardship Program also received more requests than it could fund. Those specific programs were working with an infusion of money from the Inflation Reduction Act, the 2022 climate package signed by President Joe Biden. All told, $17 billion were authorized across those four programs to deal with oversubscription issues. So now, what to do with all that fresh cash? Conservation has a level of robust funding like it has never seen before. The real challenge for conservation agriculture and for all of agriculture is now, over the next few years, that trust that has been given to the conservation, the voluntary conservation movement by Congress, if that trust that has been freely given can be earned, can we step up to the plate, responsibly put that much money on the ground and put that many additional cover crops in place, that much additional terraces, those, those saturated buffers, all of that work, can we step up and do that in the next couple of years in a very short time period that'll make a difference on conservation and address climate change? That's gonna be the real challenge. You know, the problem we're going to see, I think, with all this money, uh, and it is just, it's, I, it's hard to wrap your arms around it, uh, is how do you get enough technical assistance to implement all this money? NRCS is world-class, so the gold standard for technical assistance. Uh, their partners, the conservation districts, are gold standards. But there's just not enough trained people to provide quality, timely technical assistance. That's what the Congressional Budget Office thinks, too. CBO estimates USDA will only be able to spend $15.3 billion of the IRA funding during the window of its budgetary authority. Some congressional Republicans have brought up the idea of shifting the IRA conservation funding in the upcoming Farm Bill. Then, maybe those dollars could be used in, say, the bill's commodity title, where they could be used to broaden the farmer's safety net, or maybe a broader array of conservation programs than the IRA's specific selection. But Senate Ag Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow has been adamant that she wants the funding to stay put. NACD's Peters agrees. We feel like the best approach uh, here is, uh, you know, for us to stay focused on the, the good benefits that the conservation programs are, are providing to keep that program funding intact. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to uh, some of the previous farm bill uh, reauthorizations where, uh, you know, there's there's been a, a hesitance to uh, try to rob Peter to pay Paul. And we feel like in this case, you know, the, the conservation programs uh, are still supporting farmers. While the farm bill funding debate plays out, USDA is also implementing another landmark capital infusion, the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities Program. You may remember discussion of this program from the first episode of this season, it's using more than $3 billion in Commodity Credit Corporation funding to support pilot projects. Those projects could be, say, looking at the effects of incentivizing the planting of cover crops. As JBS's Weller points out, there's also private sector innovations that have emerged, including carbon markets. Generally, climate science tells us we have too much carbon in the atmosphere. Um, the carbon cycle is out of balance, and that's creating a lot of challenges and you know starting with increasing temperature and our global atmosphere and global ecosystems um, and that we need to rebalance that carbon cycle 
And the positive here is agriculture is that, that putting carbon back into your production system, back in the soils, uh, is really good for crop productivity, crop resilience, nutrient cycling, resilience to changing weather and to extreme weather events. So there's a positive running in the same direction here. Um, and other good news is that nature's figured out how to remove carbon from the atmosphere about three and a half billion years ago. Uh, this is technology called photosynthesis. So I think in a carbon market, it's, it's buyers, private sector, could in case, some cases be public sector, that are willing to incentivize landowners to remove carbon from the atmosphere using their commodity production systems, whether that's in grazing systems or in crop production systems. Carbon markets create a revenue opportunity for many as companies look to offset their emissions by purchasing credits from those that have sequestered carbon, in this case, farmers. It's part of a new mindset shift that Cosby says needs to happen. The climate is our dust bowl experience right now. And what's happening around the country when you talk about wildfires, you talk about droughts, you talk about hurricanes and tornadoes and all of this extreme weather pattern. I think we're in the midst of something here. Much like Hugh Hammond Bennett sounded the alarm about the need to reduce soil erosion, now many in agriculture are sounding the alarm to focus future conservation efforts on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and to do it through the same approach Bennett prioritized in the 1930s, locally led, voluntary, incentive-based conservation. This has been the fifth and final episode of our deep dive on farm and food policy drivers sponsored by the National Association of Conservation Districts. A special thanks to those that supported this season of AgriPulse Deep Dive, the sponsors, the listeners, and the dozens of people who shared their knowledge with me as I tried to get to the bottom of why today's farm policy is the way it is. For AgriPulse Deep Dive, I'm Spencer Chase.